X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Monday, June 28th. Today, back in the day on June 28th, 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria and his wife Sophia were assassinated. The two were shot in their car by 19-year-old Gavrilo Princip, an assassin who has who was trained and armed by the secret Serbian military society Black Hand. The couple were attacked as they drove, drove through Sarajevo, the capital of the Austro-Hungarian province of Bosnia and Herzegovina. The killing was politically motivated, with the main objective being the unification of Austria-Hungary's South Slav provinces into the nation of Yugoslavia. The conspirators' motivations were consistent with the movement that would later be known as the Young Bosnia. Ferdinand's assassination is widely believed to be the most immediate contributing cause of the First World War, with Austria-Hungary declaring war on Serbia a month later as a result. And today, back in the day on June 28, 1969, the Stonewall riots took place in the Greenwich Village neighborhood of Manhattan. The riots began after an undercover police raid on a gay-friendly bar called the Stonewall Inn, with the objective being to arrest any individuals found cross-dressing. The raid was met with resistance when police began using violent tactics to subdue the bar patrons and give way to spontaneous demonstrations in the streets that would last for several days. The riots were prefaced by decades of LGBTQ oppression in the United States. Between the 1920s and mid-1960s, every U.S. state had laws punishing homosexual conduct. The Stonewall riots are widely acknowledged to be a turning point in the urgency of the gay rights movement in the United States. Today, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Julia DeGras, Coalition Director at the Oregon League of Conservation Voters. X-ray. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. Oregon's eviction moratorium has been extended by one month. This extension was issued on the, on the federal level by the Centers for Disease Control. Previously, Oregonians affected by the pandemic were given a grace period on rent payments until July 1st. But as this date loomed, many residents were still facing challenges and did not expect they could make payments come next month. However, this new extension will push the evictions moratorium through the month of July. The CDC expects this will be the final extension of the moratorium during the pandemic. Recently, Oregon passed its own bill to give tenants a 60-day respite from the threat of eviction if they could provide proof of a rental assistance application. As such, a spokesman for Governor Kate Brown explained, quote, It is crucial that qualified Oregonians who have fallen behind on their rent apply for rental assistance as soon as possible so that they can benefit from the extra layer of protection against eviction. Amidst these extensions, the governor's office is asking for patience and understanding from Oregon's landlords. And now your daily dose of data. Over the weekend, 18,224 vaccine doses were added to the state immunization registry. As of Sunday, the seven-day average number of doses administered was 7,755 doses per day. To date, the state has yet to reach the 70% threshold of vaccinated Oregonians. 
However, on Friday, Governor Kate Brown announced that the state will reopen no later than June 30th, regardless if that threshold is reached. The change of plans comes after a significant drop in the daily average of administered doses in recent days. Upon the state's reopening, decisions about masks and social distancing will be made at the county level. Lawmakers have given businesses a substantial tax break. Amidst the many and monumental bills passed in the recently ended 2021 legislative session, one that has not been discussed so much is a significant tax break for businesses. A state estimate suggests that this break could collectively save Oregon businesses between $450 million to $600 million. Importantly, this new tax break will apply to all businesses regardless of their size or the sector in which they operate. So long as a business receives forgivable loans through the Federal Paycheck Protection Program, it is eligible. A similar bill was passed on the federal level earlier in the pandemic and, as is custom, Oregon mirrored the federal change on the state level, too. Critics of the tax break call it the Paycheck Protection Program Double Dip. In a statement earlier this year, State Representative Con Pham explained that the funds forgiven by this tax break are funds that, quote, we need for our schools to rebuild from wildfires, for public health infrastructure to rebuild. Despite concerns, lawmakers approved the bill just in time to beat the legislative session's recent conclusion. An ambitious plan for carbon reduction in the state energy grid has been approved. Lawmakers passed the bill in the Senate with a vote of 16 to 12, just a day after it made it through the House. The bill seeks to eliminate virtually all carbon emissions from Oregon's power grid by 2040. It's one of the most ambitious goals for reducing greenhouse gas emissions from the electricity sector in the entire nation. More specifically, the bill sets a timetable by which Portland General Electric and Pacific Power, among other smaller service suppliers, must eliminate emissions stemming from their electricity production. They'll be required to submit plans to reduce emissions by 80% by 2030 and 90% by 2035. It includes other provisions too, such as banning the expansion or new construction of fossil fuel burning power plants, providing $50 million in grants for renewable energy projects outside of Portland, and allowing Oregon cities to create green tariffs in which they agree to pay utilities more for cleaner power. Emissions from electricity accounted for 30% of Oregon's greenhouse gas emissions in 2019, meaning this bill could seriously change the state's carbon footprint. This weekend's heat wave could mean ongoing trouble for river wildlife. Warmer weather means warmer waters, and officials fear that increased river temperatures may be dangerous for salmon. That's because sustained temperatures above 68 degrees Fahrenheit are potentially harmful for these fish. Usually, salmon can find refuge in cooler tributaries, but if temperatures continue to rise across the board, even areas that are usually cooler could reach dangerous temperatures. Allison Colatello, a fisheries biologist at PNW National Laboratory, explained, quote, everything is warming up, and they're not going to find those nice, cool places where they can hang out and do their thing. In a preventative move, dam managers released cooler waters from behind Idaho's Dwarzek Dam to provide relief to Snake River salmon, but the solution is temporary. 
Researchers will be keeping a close eye on rivers, hoping that temperatures drop soon for our and the fish's sake. And finally, some good news. A Portland local just made it through the first round of America's Got Talent. Jimmy Herod is a Rose City-based singer, and last week, he secured a spot in the America's Got Talent live shows that will take place later this summer. And Herod didn't just advance, he actually earned a golden buzzer from host and modern family star, Sofia Vergara. It's exactly what any contestant is looking for on the show. Herod's success came from singing the classic musical tune, Tomorrow, from the show Annie. The Golden Buzzer will advance Herod to the next round of this national contest and ultimately bring him one step closer to the grand prize of $1 million. He joins Portlander Storm Large in advancing through America's Got Talent. Congratulations to both Storm and Jimmy. And that's today's Quick Six Local Rundown. X-Ray. Portland prides itself on being one of the most eco-friendly cities in the country, But what does it actually take to keep our city accountable and ensure that we keep moving in the right direction? Well, a lot of hard work. Few are as deep in the trenches with this kind of work as our guest, Julia DeGraw, Coalition Director at the Oregon League of Conservation Voters. Julia has dedicated her life's work to advocating for the environment. She's joining us to discuss her role at the Oregon League of Conservation Voters and their current priorities as the 2021 legislative session comes to an end. Portland prides itself on being one of the most eco-friendly cities in the country. But what does it actually take to keep our city accountable and ensure that we keep moving in the right direction? Well, a lot of hard work. Few are as deep in the trenches with this kind of work as our guest this morning. Julia DeGraw is the Coalition Director at the Oregon League of Conservation Voters and has dedicated her life's work to advocating for the environment. She's joining us today to discuss her role at the OLCV and their current priorities as the 2021 legislative session comes to an end later this month. Julia, thank you for joining us. How are you today? Thank you so much for having me. And I am, uh, I'm good you know the end of session is a really kind of tumultuous and crazy time and I'm uh and this is my first time uh doing this job during a full session so it's a lot of uh learning and a lot of excitement got it well appreciate your honesty on that one I can only imagine how stressful it is for you right now could you briefly describe the mission of the Oregon League of Conservation Voters yeah, so um, I'm the coalition director at the Oregon League of Conservation Voters, and we work to protect Oregon's natural legacy and elect pro-environment candidate, pro-environment candidates and um, hold our elected officials accountable. Um, we're one of those few environmental groups um, in the state of Oregon that actually, you know, does political work, um, which is really exciting. And part of my job at Oregon League of Conservation Voters is running um, the Oregon Conservation Network, um, which is a coalition of organizations that select priorities for every uh, legislative session because uh, we recognize that the environment um, always, uh, uh, it's easier for us to win on environmental issues when we have a broad, strong coalition working together toward a common goal. Okay. Generally speaking, how does Oregon compare to other states in terms of eco-friendliness? <laughs> I think it's kind of similar to the mythology around the city of Portland. Um, we do have a beautiful state, and we've done some really incredible things 
in the past, uh, like past really unique uh, land use laws that, that, that protect the unique beauty of our state. Um, but when it comes to what we've done recently, uh, we're kind of frankly behind. You know, uh, our neighboring states have all passed legislation uh, to move toward 100% clean energy. And uh, we are on the cusp of fast passing legislation this session that's going to get Oregon on the same page with our neighbors. But it took us a little while to get there. So um, it really depends on exactly what you're talking about. But um, sometimes we're ahead of the game and sometimes we're a little bit behind. And I think another really important thing to note in the state of Oregon is the incredible power of the timber industry. Mm. Uh, I would say we're behind our neighbors when it comes to um, kind of reining in the undue political influence of the timber industry in the state of Oregon. Do you feel like the reality that we are behind conflicts with a lot of how Oregonians view the environmental nature of the people here, and especially in Portland? Yeah, I think definitely that there's a disconnect there. Um, I think it's uh, not exactly easy for folks to, um, you know, regularly track their local and state politics. Uh, they go recreate in, in nature and they Maybe they see a clear cut here and there, but when they're hiking on the trails and they're experiencing the beauty of the state, there might just be kind of like an assumption that, that everything's okay. But the bottom line is we actually do have to work hard to hold our politicians accountable to to passing legislation that's going to keep Portland on, I mean, that's going to keep Oregon on track. And I, and I caught a bit of your, your interview prior, prior to the interview with me, and, and climate change is just one of those areas where our state has to act boldly and quickly and um, and so far, we're just not quite on track with where we need to be um, in order to really mitigate uh, climate change in our state. And it is mitigate because, you know, obviously climate change is upon us. Right. And I appreciate that you brought up the interview with Tyler, because I was just going to say one thing that Tyler touched on was the fact that when it comes to real concrete environmental shifts and moving towards, like you said, mitigating climate change, it is all based in legislation. You know, there are things that individuals could do, but when we're talking about systemic change, that's coming from our government, right? Right, right. And where we're, we got, um, I don't want to say we got lucky because it was really unfortunate to see the clean energy jobs bill the last few sessions ultimately not come to fruition. But the governor did step up and pass an executive order on climate change but the challenge with that is until that's, you know, until the rulemaking is completed and these programs are fully funded, um, the, you know, that executive order is, 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 is only as powerful as the actions it creates, right? You know, so it's like we're, we really have to make sure that when we pass legislation or when executive orders are enacted that then we fall through with the funding and, mm-hmm. and the actions that are necessary to make these uh, pieces of legislation and, and these political actions real. Could you go into a little more detail on, you said, the executive order for climate change. Can you explain a little bit more about what that is? Yeah. At the end of uh, the last uh, uh, legislative session, the uh, last one before this one, about a, yeah, uh, the clean energy jobs bill um, was this huge piece of legislation that was going to you know, put Oregon on, a, on the map for, um, for you know, basically... Uh, putting a price on carbon and and funding programs through that tax and really driving down um, the the carbon emissions in our state. And that bill ultimately ended up not passing. The Republicans walked out on it. Um, And uh, within just days before the governor announced uh, um, 
lockdown from, for, for COVID, uh, she passed an executive order that, that basically through, you know, her own executive order um, required every single state agency to take actions to mitigate climate change, right? And we are in the middle, you know, it's a very long process of implementing such a broad sweeping order. Um, and part of what uh, is going to go into making her executive order um, powerful is making sure that the state agencies have the staffing and the funding to to follow through. So that's what a lot of um, our you know priority budgets and 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 some priority pieces of legislation in this legislative session were really geared toward um, you know making sure that the executive order could be implemented fully. Mm, okay, and so that was from you said not the current legislative session but the previous one, right? Yes. Yeah. We had our year anniversary basically from the executive order in March. Okay. And so focusing now on what's to come, there are a number of bills that the OLCV is supporting in the remainder of this session. And one that's getting a lot of attention right now is the 100% clean energy for all bill. Can you explain what the goal is here? Yeah, so this is what I kind of alluded to a little bit earlier. Um, uh, the Oregon Conservation Network and OLCV is, is partnering with the Clean Energy Opportunity Campaign, um, which uh, was prioritizing the passage of three bills, actually, the 100% Clean Bill, um, Healthy Homes, and the um, en- Energy Affordability Act. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, these three bills combined are going to really help uh, create a just transition to uh, clean energy future. And the 100% clean energy for all bill is kind of the, the large, the largest piece of legislation in it that's like the hardest to pass, right? Because it's the most transformative. The 100% clean bill would get us to 100% clean energy production by 2040, which is one of the fastest time, timelines of any 100% clean bill in the United States. Lots of states have passed these bills. Um, and uh, there are a couple other things that make the 100% clean bill really unique here in Oregon. Um, uh, first of all, it was uh, created by and, and primarily worked on and by uh, frontline communities, uh, Verde and other organizations um, that really re- represent um, frontline communities uh, were front and center in developing this policy and helping getting it across the finish line, which is historic and really incredible, especially in a state like Oregon, um, that we know is a very, you know, white state with a pretty, um, you know, racist history. So that's a big deal. Um, and within this bill, because it was led um, by impacted communities, um, we have some really great provisions in there that um, ensure some of the best labor standards of any 100% clean policy in the nation. Um, and it explicitly bans any new fossil fuel infrastructure, which is unique to our legislation here in Oregon. Um, and again, it has one of the fastest timelines for getting us to 100% clean energy um, in the United States. So we're really setting a standard with this bill. Here's the thing. It has to pass. We're waiting until the last. <laughs> right. the legislators have waited until the last week of session, which is this week, to, um, to, to pass it. But it is looking really good for 100% clean. We are expecting it to, to pass this session. Wow. Well, that's amazing. I mean, when you... I mean, was there any, you sound pretty confident, but was there any opposition to the bill? And if so, what did opponents have to say about it? You know, uh, there's not a particularly organized opposition to this bill. Um, I, I would say that there's a number of Republicans who don't like it. I, I would just chalk that up to partisanship, though, honestly. 
there was a lot of good faith efforts uh, to work with Republicans. Uh, frankly, this bill you know, defines environmental justice communities, and it includes rural communities who are um, disproportionately impacted by climate change. Um, and a lot of Republicans represent rural parts of the state, right? And so we're talking about creating a huge number of jobs and uh, um, improving the lives for folks um, in rural parts of the state in a really substantial way. Um, and I think maybe that might be why there isn't such vitriolic uh, opposition to this bill from Republicans uh, is because they do recognize at the end of the day that we're going to get a lot of economic development as we create um, new energy sources in the state of Oregon. Um, and it's going to benefit uh, the life, the lives of rural Oregonians. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that. So again, the interview that we had earlier parallels what I'm talking about with you in many ways, because one thing that Tyler mentioned is the importance of meeting people where they are and avoiding the politicization of climate change. And kind of like mm-hmm. you said, you know, rural communities that might be more conservative are still going to be just as impacted, if not more, because they have, you know, they're less resources to protect themselves, I guess, um, by climate change. And so kind of describing this bill in ways that benefit them and avoiding using these kind of trigger words, do you think that's been a key part of your success in kind of turning the tide with this? Yeah, and I think that that was part of what happened for sure on this bill was really focusing on the things we all agree upon, which is economic development and improving the lives of people throughout the state, you know, and, and I think that was absolutely crucial. Um, I do think, though, that we do have to get to a place where climate change is is not um, a bad word, you know, and, and it, it's like we need to depoliticize science. You know, uh, you know, we need to be able to have legislators who are unafraid of, um, you know, being clear about what climate change is and the action needs to be taken. That said, you're right about, um, you know, you should absolutely be promoting the parts of bills that are going to resonate with whoever it is you're talking to. And if what's going to resonate with uh, a legislator is economic development opportunities for their community, then you're going to talk about that. Another bill on the docket is the Smart Comprehensive Wildfire Policy. And there's been a lot of talk lately among Oregonians about how Oregon is now at the greatest risk for wildfires that it's been in decades. Does this bill kind of address those fears that people have been having? Yeah, so this is the bill that Oregon should have passed a decade ago, Um, (laughs) which is often the case with these things. Um, But this comprehensive wildfire policy would require the entire state of Oregon to uh, to to have a plan and have standards for how to be prepared um, for wildfire seasons. And 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 they would be uh, uh, it's it's basically I'm not trying to be too technical here, but. This is kind of similar to 100% clean. If you look at a map of the West, every state around Oregon, including Idaho and Wyoming, have all adopted what are called these international um, uh, urban wildlife, uh, urban wildland interface standards. Um, And that basically means in areas where people live that kind of um, overlaps with with wild areas where they're at higher risk for um, wildfire, we need to have a, a standard in every single one of those communities across the state for how they can be resilient and prepared for wildfire. And this means home hardening, making sure that homes are rebuilt in a way that they're going to be more safe from wildfire. It means uh, removing uh, uh, um, 
I mean, treating the landscapes within 100 yards of all of these houses to make sure that they're protected from wildfire. It means um, upgrading houses if they, uh, you know, already exist in those areas and are not wildfire safe. So, like, there's a lot of different um, components to this bill. It's comprehensive. It's huge. Um, it also requires wildfire mapping. Get this. We don't actually know where the high-risk areas are in a comprehensive way because we haven't collected all the maps and really come together as a state to decide where is the risk and how should we be building where, you know, and where shouldn't we be building at all any kind of new development because it's too high of a risk, right? So wildfire mapping is one of those things that, again, we should have been doing a long time ago, but we're going to finally get it going with this legislation. So what's really mind-blowing is that this massive comprehensive wildfire legislation that's going to help us be resilient and prepared for future wildfire seasons is um, something that Republicans in this legislative session seem to be really um, upset about. Uh, And it's really nerve-wracking because it's the final week of session and, and Republicans are really upset about this bill. And like we literally have already started the wildfire season in Oregon. There is a wildfire raging on the Warm Springs Reservation. We uh, have 100, we're going to have more than 100 degree weather in the middle of June. It is insane. Our state burned last year. We lost thousands of homes and people died. And Republicans are trying to politicize comprehensive wildfire legislation that passes you know, international codes that are very similar to what they have in states like Idaho, you know, which is Republican, right? So it's it's just really concerning to see what's happening there. Um, The Democrats um, uh, have really stepped up to the plate here in developing a piece of legislation that has broad-based support, including from fire marshals and uh, local municipalities from across the state. Um, and it's legislation we desperately need, and we're really hoping to get it across the finish line this session, but it requires the Republicans staying in the building. So, Julia, excuse me, before we conclude here, is there any way that X-ray listeners can get involved with any of these bills and show their support? Um, Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say uh, for the clean energy opportunity, which includes 100% clean, you can visit the uh, clean Energy Opportunity website. I believe it's just uh, cleanenergyopportunity.org. Um, and that's how you can take action 100% clean. Um, you can also just visit olcd.org um, to figure out what we're working on and get engaged at that level. We have um, a team of volunteers from across the state um, that help us, you know, track legislation and, and show up to town halls and make sure that their voices are being heard on these key issues. We have to make sure the legislators are hearing about climate change, right, every time they have a town hall. So um, we can definitely plug you in. So olcv.org, you can uh, check us out there. Thank you so much. Our guest this morning has been Julia DeGraw from the Oregon League of Conservation Voters. Julia, we appreciate you being here. We appreciate all the work you do to keep our state beautiful. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks to Julia for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in just about 30 minutes. And thank you, Democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.